0: My Life's Lessons NT style As an overview of what you're going to be able to expect from My Mop uh, podcasts in the future, I thought I'd just uh, give a quick rundown of um, year by year uh, since arriving in Australia and what some of the things are that are going to be um, covered in my future episodes, it's all a bit exciting to think uh, we're finally getting this off the ground. So, Together with uh, the excitement I feel now, I'm sure my parents uh, had uh, the equal degree of excitement, anticipation, dread, foreboding, emotional turmoil and trepidation about uh, coming the other side of the world, away from their families, away from everything that was familiar to them, anything and everything that they stood for, and came to venture off six months pregnant with me to the other side of the globe and say, yep, let's do this. So at the grand old age of uh, 20 and 21, they uh, hopped on an aeroplane after having had many supplies and uh, preparations done in a very methodical, typically German way, and they would be then taken care of when they arrived in this foreign land, and um, as they did, and then in mid '65, they actually arrived in Australia at the Matraville Hostel in Sydney, um, complete with a kitchen sink and a bun in the oven, so to speak, being me. I would be the first of four children they were to have. So it was something that was, um, you know, an opportunity for them to literally cut their teeth on, being parents. Um, Mum had a hell of a trial and trouble uh, while delivering me. Um, I ended up being a forceps delivery. She used to say things like, um, you know... Have your waters broken. No, I don't want to drink a water. I'm trying to have a baby. Her German was, or English, sorry, was um, of the high sort of Oxford English um, that they'd learnt. So there wasn't really anything in the vernacular that uh, took care of um, have your waters broken or any of the colloquialisms of um, the Aussie slang. So it was a pretty daunting prospect for her, let alone having a child um, on the other side of the planet, away from everybody, and knowing that not a single member of your family was going to be seeing that new child. I can't even begin to imagine how absolutely soul-crushing that must have been for them. And by choice they came here, that's true, Um, however... There were some slightly extenuating circumstances that brought that all about, but that's another story. So um, I was born outside of Dubbo in a little town called Narramine, and that was while mum and dad were working on a sheep station uh, that was run by or owned by the Brady family, and it was Edithville. So I remember them speaking very fondly about Edithville over the years. And we did actually then, um, after we'd moved to Queensland in the mid to late 70s, did catch up with the Brady family again in Toowoomba. Um, But since those days, I've lost contact with them again. So in 1966, when I was nine or so months old, Dad decided that uh, managing a buffalo station in the Territory was a good idea. This was um, done with, complete with an FC ute, a wringer washing machine in the back, uh, myself in a bathtub uh, in the front seat with mum in the ute, and uh, later on I was to wriggle out of the uh, front of the ute in the bathtub down the side embankment when they'd had a flat tire so it was um, just reminding me that it's literally throwing out the baby and the bathwater and however that saying goes Um, and then we off we headed to the top end you know some three and a half thousand kilometres away from Dubbo. Uh, I think to say that this was a new experience for a pair of uh, greenhorn Germans um, would be the understatement of the century let alone two very young ones and also having no prior experience in this department whatsoever so let's just say it's been an interesting journey and probably the upshot is that we all survived it so that was the main thing so they arrived in time um for a wet season which uh, left me looking like a dot to dot um picture or puzzle um mum said and described to me (coughs) excuse me on how um She just cried when her baby was covered in prickly heat um, due to the humidity and um, the warm weather that, of course, we weren't used to from outback New South Wales. Mum was learning quickly to improvise with an oven door that didn't close. She used to joke about how it was propped up with a stick and a brick, um, being an old combustion stove. Uh, She learnt to cook for a band of men, being the shooters and the abattoir workers, and somehow always managed to look like she'd just stepped off the Paris catwalk, all while living in the middle of bloody nowhere, um, so that when someone was lost and used to come and stumble into the place, um, they used to think they'd gone to heaven when they saw mum there looking uh, rather European and exquisite and regal, and uh, I think they thought they'd uh, seen an angel. But um, she used to manage to bring a particular elegance and grace um, to just about any present, you know, situation or circumstance and even um, with having like a Parisian style print tea towel hung on an old, um, what is it, like um, corrugated tin iron, you know, iron tin wall um, because it was an old Sydney Williams hut that we lived in out bush so She still managed to, even amongst the cobwebs and everything, to still bring some degree of elegance. So then in 1967, we had my sister arrive. Um, We'd just come out of uh, a wet season, so um, the food supplies were very low. And mum used to talk about having been so hungry that she actually took one of the rifles and went and shot some magpie geese. Um, which the Aboriginals are well aware of how nice and yummy they are. So um, this baby then was born very underweight and was in need of special care. Um, And that all happened, um, my sister was born end of August. So for those of you who are familiar with the wet season in the Southern Hemisphere, you'll know that come September, October, it starts to get very steamy, and there's already early showers. And then by November, December, um, in those days especially, you could get cut off and not be able to you know, like um, traverse the country at all. So, with that, they brought out um, the sister, my sister, and um, we were out bush. Um, with no emergency avenues whatsoever um, should anything go wrong. And you'd have to ask yourself, what could go wrong? We were 120 miles east of Darwin. Roads cut off for um, you know bad weather and flooded rivers. And once a week, a water resources um, helicopter or aeroplane um, used to fly over. Um, or you used to have a radio call. Um, you know, with the opportunity once a week to sort of answer your call and I don't know what really happened if you didn't get to the, tel- uh, the radio in time to answer and say, yeah, roger, roger, we're here. So it was a, a fairly precarious place for a new mum without any support crew to rear two young children. Um, to say that dad was a pretty tough taskmaster as a boss would be a, an understatement. His reputation still um, is well known around the top end and not for all the good reasons. However, he did get the job done. So full credit to you know him for where credit's due. And given his age and also his lack of English when he arrived, um, it was a tough ask of anybody. And I'm sure there must have been some who would have sat back and said, oh, let's see how these guys go. So yeah that was um 1967 and then mum did actually have another pregnancy after that and then again probably due to the fairly harrowing circumstances on which we were under which we were living she actually lost that baby which was supposed to have been a little boy she said yeah, and I've never forgotten her saying you know that um he passed and she was bleeding so heavily um and obviously he went down into the septic tank which you know is just sort of pretty horrifying these days and um you know she was bleeding profusely and you know you're there with a whole group of men um all fairly um chauvinistic probably to put it politely and um her Having to deal with all of that on her own, plus still be well and truly one of the workers and um, keep everyone fed. So I think we've probably got a lot to be thankful for in the modern age. Uh, 1968, um, there was the dry season um, for the buffalo hunting kicked in again. Um, the season, you know, the dry season is only a window of time that you have to earn the money and process the meat um, to bring in the dollars uh, in that window otherwise once the wet season rains come there's no way that you get out onto the black soil plains and um, get those animals so the dry season was times when I remember um, stories of dad being terribly sleep deprived and as a mechanic he was also the one who then serviced vehicles um, you know was welding at night um, doing repairs on trailers and um, bull catches etc um, there was a story <laughs> at one stage where he did um, you know he sort of worked two or three days straight um, in the days long before you know speed and all that sort of stuff was around and um, he's supposed to have then just conked out and slept and he woke up whatever period later and you know, was sort of frantic, like, come on, come on, we've got to go. And everyone had said, oh, no, you've been asleep for a day or two already. Um, It's all been okay. We've coped without you. So um, that, I guess, is one of those reminders that your body will take over and shut down for you if uh, you work it too hard. So... That's um something I do remember from those days. Um, the wet season meant that we were cut off for you know four to six months of the year. And again, because it was only the manager living there with his two little girls and maybe a you know a handful of other you know, Aboriginal staff or whatever um, back in those days, that wasn't warranted to then run the generator. And the generator was a big bugger of a thing I can remember and terribly noisy as a kid going up to this generator um, because it was only a priority for the abattoirs and the meatworks so of course the sound of the kerosene lanterns um, hissing at night was something that I was very familiar with in the end and um, yeah we definitely didn't have the privilege of having the generator going in the wet season which was the hot sticky time of year so you didn't even have a fan you know bringing you any breeze or anything else to be cool so 1969, um, Mum and Dad went back to Germany, and that was mostly in pursuit of um, trying to find a meat export um, market. So um, Dad did end up succeeding in that and uh, had the first export license for buffalo in Australia. So full kudos to him for having made that happen. And also, it helped to have um, you know the connections, I suppose, and that cultural. Um, connection to be able to fall back on to make, you know, um, open and expand the different markets. Yeah, in 1970, yeah, more heat and more adaptations of the meatworks, um, bringing it up to scratch for the export license to be granted. And then um, Dad used to have a favourite peeve, and that was having four wheel drive club members coming out generally in their Land Rovers. And I can remember. Um, with boring regularity they would put strands of toilet paper along the trees along the road um, and we're talking a sandy dirt old track not a road road and um, he would go along and he'd pull that off at times or if they were bogged and it was a long stretch of a muddy sort of bog we would just hoot on through there and he would just spray them with water and sort of be like well you shouldn't even be out here Now, he did have a valid point in that he used to be concerned that if for some obscure reason there were some of his buffalo shooters around Um, at that point it could have been that someone would have been accidentally shot in which case I'm sure he would have had to do a fair bit of explaining as to how that may have come so for him it was a logical thing that the less people we had out there the better it was and certainly not some tourists who were just outside seeing and thinking they were having a wonderful time in their four-wheel drives so that definitely has been burned in my brain as a child um of probably how you shouldn't deal with people but dad was fairly renowned for not exactly being the most considerate of um, people when it came to that sort of thing however I can understand that his priority was um, the safety issue and I know that he certainly would have been gutted should have anyone ever ended up injured then come 1971 he was um becoming involved in um Baggett park speedway in darwin uh, with the super modifieds uh, for those who are familiar with speedway and this was something that he wasn't supposed to pursue as the manager of the um meatworks and um station because um that was an agreement him and the manager had for whatever reason and um it meant then that this was sort of very much supposed to be kept hush hush it also resulted in him then racing under an alias so he actually raced as bert miller so that's quite funny really in a sense because as a german bert miller definitely doesn't sound very german so it also meant that 1971 we saw um a visit by the only members of the family that ever did come to australia in the whole 50 years and that was dad's older brother married mum's older sister so they um came out in 71 and they did do then another couple of trips over the years but um they were the only ones who ever did come and venture on out uh, in 1972 we had dad and mum drive uh down to warrnambool in victoria from the from darwin with a very loaded trailer and an old ute um, for the Australian titles for Dad to represent the Northern Territory um, in the Supermodifieds. My sister and I, we were babysat, cared for, left with, whatever. Um, a family, the Petersons, out at Howard's, Howard Springs. And I have some interesting memories of that. That was when I first got to see... Um, and use an outdoor dunny, and watch with great interest at this big um, corrugated steel funnel being placed in the top of the toilet, and then something being poured down there, some sort of flammable liquid, and it being ignited to then help you know deal with the decomposing and whatever else. So that was fascinating as a child. Um, also, I'll never forget um, swimming at a Howard Springs and the little fish in the water there were nibbling at our legs. I must have had like a little cut or something on my leg and they were nibbling on the scab. So that just springs to mind as well. Anyway, so 1973 saw us finishing up the uh, managing at Point Stewart or Jimmy's Creek as the, um, the springs behind, or the beautiful, yeah, natural springs of Jimmy's Creek were um, behind the homestead there. And we moved next door to Wildman River uh, with the Fairthorn family that were um, owners of that property. And then after that, uh, we moved into town uh, permanently because over that, Two or three years prior, um, mum and dad had obtained a housing commission house, so we had that in town as well. So in 1974, there was a few major things happened. Um, Mid-year, we had the arrival of our brother um, so he was um, right on the day of six months before cyclone Tracy because obviously yeah the year ended that year with cyclone Tracy arriving on Christmas day and a bit like the cyclone our brother was uh, a little bit of a cyclone as well as it turned out in the time to come, and yeah, so Cyclone Tracy was certainly something that I will never forget. And our poor family in uh, Germany had to wait a couple of weeks before the Red Cross could get word through to them that we'd even survived. And also in this year, um, after my brother was born, we also had then the passing of uh, Dad's Dad, which was um, very sad as he wasn't a particularly old man. Um, but again, because we'd um, not seen them all that much. I only had uh, the one visit prior to be able to remember my gross, gross papa but um, he was definitely someone I thought of fondly and used to give me a warm feeling inside of the love that he used to have for us all and must have been hard for all of them to have us over here and then them in um, you know a whole different type of society and culture and expectation and bear in mind back in these days there were only photos, slides telegrams or you know, the old snail mail to communicate. So it definitely was a, a time when um yeah I'm not really sure how mum ever managed. But like um like a lot of people in adverse situations you continue on and it's surprising on what we do survive. So yeah Cyclone Tracy was definitely probably the main main um, thing that's been probably my greatest um, feat to have to have gotten through and it's needless, left, needless to say left its own scars um, but there were other people that had gone through it too and um, we were forever ever ever grateful that we made it through that night it was um, yeah, hell on earth it's a fair saying for that one so 1975 saw us um, by the middle of the year do a trip to Germany Um, Because we didn't have any family in Australia, it meant that the evacuation airfares they were insisting everyone take and our brother only being six months old, they're like, you're crazy, you need to get out of here. And we all said, well, where do we go? Where are we going to go and sit for a few months with family or whatever and wait for Darwin to rebuild? So um, we actually stayed and those airfares then were the ones that we used to then go to Germany um, and catch up with the family and reassure them that we were definitely still in one piece. And later that year it saw us um, relocate into Brisbane, Um, and this was with a newly developed engine that Dad had um, brought back from Germany as well for his midget now. He'd downsized in the vehicles he was racing for Speedway, so, you know, it was exciting times for him. He was looking forward to this new prototype engine that he'd brought out. Um, And by this time, um, in 73, 74, he'd... um, Become friends with some um, new guys uh, one who was the Speedway uh, Grounds manager Dave Evans and he became a good close friend of the family Brian Dillon and Gary Gardner, they'd both come up from Brisbane and were racing um, their cars in Darwin at Bagot Park and um, They all offered for dad to um, have work in Brisbane So guess what off to Brizzy we went um, I'll never forget, we'd loaded up an um, old Bedford truck and it ended up so loaded that it ended up on a truck and we just drove down to Brisbane in an old blue Cortina station wagon. Now, when you're travelling with three children and one is uh, quite young, you know, just a toddler, well, it would have been 12, 14 months old, and us two girls, um, the sleeping arrangements were interesting. Mum and Dad were in the... St- station wagon. Mark's um, wooden cot had been folded out and the um, station wagon door lifted and the cots hopped in under there with a mozzie net over it. And then my sister and I, we were very gracefully placed on the roof rack on mattresses. And then just as a safety feature in case we might fall off Dad decided he'd octopus strap us to the roof rack. Now, I don't know, in other places, you will call an octopus strap something else, I know. But it's basically the stretchy rubber with the hook on each end that can just about latch around anything. And you always hope to God that they never come undone because you'd lose an eye if those hooks ever came through. So we had wonderful nights sleeping under the stars, literally. I used to think now I wondered what happened if a snake had have got into the um, cot of my brother. But you know what? We made it. So that was the main thing. So, of course, when we got to Brisbane, we had a house in Wellers Hill and um, went off to the local school there. Uh, We got to know a young neighbour behind us, Elizabeth. And there was a beautiful old lady next door called Mrs Catanac who had uh, this massive fig tree in her backyard. Um, We loved that tree and we played in it for hours. And those oki straps I was talking about, they came in handy too because we would attach them in a triangle around three branches, if you can picture that, and we would have like a series of them, you know, maybe three or four in a row, and that would become our bed. And my sister and I and Elizabeth, we would lay on those structures... (laughs) up high in the branches and, um, you know, absolutely no fear and no, you know, um, worry about the risks we were taking. So, yeah, when I think about it now, I think, blimey, you know, we were um, definitely well and truly up for a challenge. And then um, we... Moved from Willis Hill and went into another suburb um, of Brisbane, and that was McGregor, and that then meant another school change. While we were there, um, I'll never forget, Mum had um, become involved in Mary Kay while we were still in Darwin back in '74. And down in this suburb where we then moved to was one of the very successful ladies of the time um, in Mary Kay, and her name was Cynthia Coop. Now when we went to Cynthia's house one day she had a pink speedboat, a pink trailer and a pink Commodore all parked in her driveway and when you're a a young child, well I was 10 or 11 by that stage, and you walk on in and then she was talking shop with mum and she'd made these tulle little um, like figurines of a head and arms a body and a pair of legs and they were then consisting of a cotton ball and tubes of varying samples um, of body wash and um, body lotion and whatever else there was so you know and she'd proudly show us these and as a child I was just gobsmacked and couldn't get over the fact that This would be how someone could earn and achieve these um, prizes. So years later, I did end up joining Mary Kay myself as well and it did become you know, part of the family institution, so to speak, and I do have a lot of um, people that I do thank for the love and support that I had through our Mary Kay connections. Sadly, Mary Kay, together with COVID, um, certainly Mary Kay in Australia, uh, they pulled the pin just as COVID was coming on the scene, and sadly, that um, 50 years of Mary Kay in Australia ceased it was the first subsidiary that had come out of America Um, being an English-speaking country there were so many things that um, were good about it and good for the company to have started out over here and then slowly you know with the things changing as far as our consumer habits go and people spending less time with each other one-on-one and you know more women working there's less people sitting around a table and um, Doing a skincare class. So overall um, the decision was made. Yeah, very cruelly and in somewhat a rather interesting fashion via a webinar while everyone was online um, the announcement was made and by the end of the webinar the website had been pulled down and they were told after you know some of them you know 15 20 30 years 40 years of having built up their rather substantial enterprises um, that suddenly the pull is, uh, the plug has been pulled on that so i think it's safe to say this last 18 months with covid and everything else there's been plenty of different forms of hurt that we've all had to try and endure so that was another one but anyway getting back to 1976 so um yeah we were still in Brisbane but by this time um we'd gotten to know another family from Brian Dillon's workshop and that was the Lewis family now they had older like the second generation family that lived around Kingaroy and um, Nanango and Maidenwell and so we got to know these people and we then used to go up and visit like they did the real proper two and three generation family out the front playing cricket and Christmas dinners and all that sort of stuff so um, that was on those trips up there from Brisbane that was when we got introduced to Kingaroy now Kingaroy is Jobielke country So, and it's famous for its peanuts. So if you've ever heard of Kingaroy, it'll be probably in relation to either of those two things or its rich red volcanic soils. So um, there it was that um, mum and dad found a Ampole service station that was for sale and dad being a mechanic that seemed to work hand in hand and this brought um, the Diviacs into our lives. Johnny Diviac was a a Czechoslovakian, I think from memory, you know, compatriot in Australia, a very colourful, loud and bombastic man, but um, nonetheless he took dad under his wing and he said then from then on dad would no longer be Lota um, but he would be known as Lloyd and I always found that really quite comical as a child thinking hang on you're a culturally different person as well and you're going to give dad a different name because you can't say his name from a German perspective so that was quite amusing to me so dad then became Lloyd um, from those days on and forever after pretty much so um yeah then mum had had someone in Brisbane, one of our neighbours, had said to her, Oh, Mel, oh yeah, no, I'm gonna call you Mella. and Mum was sort of like, Oh, that's a bit odd and you know, felt a bit funny because mum used to often get um sort of misconstrued or construed for um with Mel is actually for Mechtil, so Mel was the simple version, but sometimes it would be Mel or people would say, oh, is it Malcolm? And then they'd see Mum and realise, no, clearly it's a female. So Moira in Brisbane thought Mella was a really nice way of, you know, sort of rounding it out and still having the connection from originally. So that then came into play years later, that Mum would then take on Mella, but um, it all originated back in 1976. So that's a little overview of what we're going to be covering in these future episodes. And I really look forward to being able to, you know, what would you say? Flesh it out because that's just the um, skeletons and the bones of it and we will go into each of those years in more depth and there's a whole lot of stories that go with each of those and I'll also have opportunities where I'll bring um, my sister in and we'll have a little um, chat about some of these different points because there's some funny stuff that went on in those days and bearing in mind it's you know as me having lived it I don't feel like it's so long ago but when I look at the dates and I go, oh, holy crap, that's actually a fair while ago. The amount that has changed in our lives since then, and even just like I say, the opportunity to be able to, you know, have only once a week a radio call in. I don't know how some of the people who m- live on their phones, me included, would go with knowing that once a week at certain time of day, you've got to do that radio call if you want any Um, Emergency supplies dropped in, you know, like food rations or anything else, you've got to be on that radio and be receptive and hopefully transmit a message. So it does just remind me of how much things have changed, but where our priorities are these days. So, yeah, food for thought. And on that happy note, I will leave you with some of the tales of my mob, but also hopefully with a little sweetener of what's um, to come and what you can expect to have um be discussed and look you know you've got to be able to laugh at yourself a little bit isn't it otherwise it's all just way too serious have a good one folks and hooroo Thank you so much for listening and Huru from Alice